This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who takes absurd to bizarre and then psychotic. He is the captain. That's right. I'm a man of many qualities. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are proud to be featuring Lap State Temps. Pardon my French. This is an American wild ale brewed by White Rooster Farmhouse Brewery. This beer is highly carbonated and dry with a slight spice from the Saison yeast. It's got a good hint of white grape in here as well. ABV 5.25%, garage grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. And this week, we got some cold beers thanks to our good friends right here. First up, a cheers to Janessa in Lakeville, Massachusetts. And we have a big shout to Oscar from Oxfordshire, UK, or from Sesame Street. Here's a double cheers to the London Underground. Cheers to Tammy and Andy and London, United Kingdom. And a big We Like Your Chip to Jamie and Boise, Idaho. Next, we have Reed and Dawn in Brighton, Michigan. And last, but certainly not least, we have Melanie and Derek down in San Angelo, Texas. Everyone we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and donated to this week's beer fund. And for that, we are grateful. Yeah, if you want to check out our old episodes, check us out on the Stitcher app. The Stitcher also, app. <laughs> Go get it. And we also have Download a bonus Stitcher show app. called Off the Record. Listen to Because off the record. it's Off the Record. And that is enough of the beers, Neos. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. My name is David Bigney. 
I'm an attorney and I'd like to talk to you about Jennifer Kessie. It's time to bring Jennifer Kessie home. If you have any information about where Jennifer is, who has taken her, or the person of interest, please contact a lawyer immediately. Ask a lawyer about the protection you may have under attorney-client privilege and how your identity can be protected, and provide him or her with the information that you have. Your attorney will work in your best interest. There is a reward for information that leads to the whereabouts of Jennifer or the person of interest. Please do the right thing. Please do the right thing. In regards to the disappearance and abduction of Jennifer Kessie, Sergeant Barbara Jones of the Orlando Police Department had this to say, quote, We established a timeline of Monday when she last talked to Rob, which was about 10 p.m., to Thursday at around 8.06 when a resident of that condominium complex located her car. So that's about a 58-hour window. She goes on to say, we did obtain some video surveillance at the condominiums where her vehicle was found. And that surveillance video depicted a picture of a pedestrian, which we're classifying as a person of interest. That video was taken on Tuesday, the 24th at around 12 noon. So Monday at 10 PM until the following day at 12 noon is the time frame where we had that pedestrian who is a person of interest in this case that we're desperately trying to find out who that is to see what they know about possibly the whereabouts of Jennifer Kessie. This has been one of the big questions in this case. So let's take a look at the possibilities of a nighttime abduction versus morning abduction. When exactly Jennifer was taken is an extremely divisive subject in this case. There are two schools of thought and both We discussed a bit last week, and more importantly, both have evidence backing them up. This is one of the biggest mysteries wrapped inside this larger mystery. When you have a big fat blank spot in your timeline, it is so key and instrumental to the investigation that you shrink that window of time a bit. Squeeze the breeze and close that window a little. So now we are looking at a 14-hour window for the purpose of her vehicle. But more like just under 13 hours when you factor in the important 11 a.m. meeting she planned on attending at work that day. And then very likely all the way to 7.45 a.m. when she should have been leaving for work to get there at 8 a.m. Now, Captain, it seems obvious that the Kessies continue to believe that Jennifer was abducted in the morning as she left for work. And there is quite a bit of evidence to support this theory. Yeah, let's go through this evidence. Okay, so one thing we have to factor in is Jennifer told Rob on the phone the night before that she was already in bed. The other item is we have a wet shower, damp towel, which show so many people say that this is proof that she showered in the morning just before the time that she would usually leave for work. Right. Jen's contact lenses were missing and her glasses were on the sink, implying that she Woke up that morning, took off the glasses during the portion of getting ready for work. She applies her contact lenses. The bathroom sink, we find her makeup and hairdryer was out on the countertop. Her pajamas were on the floor. 
The bed had been slept in or at the very least was unmade. We do have to factor some other things in regarding an unmade bed, but but I think it's somewhat fair to say that Logan and his friends who stayed there that weekend before leaving an unmade bed at her condo when she was so nice to let them stay there would be would just be rude or disrespectful to to the owner of the condo. Right. And Monday night was her first night back. So if someone was in the bed, it almost certainly had to be her. The work clothes that she had, there were two outfits laid out that were found on the bed. And these were clothes, these were outfits that would match the missing shoes, those those shoes that she was so proud of. Her mother says, look, she's trying to pair outfits with with her shoes that she wanted to wear to work that day. She told me she was going to be wearing these shoes to work that day. Yeah, this is business casual outfits, not something you'd think that she would wear at night. So all of these things point to Jennifer going to bed on Monday night, waking up on Tuesday, going about her normal morning routine, and then vanishing before she ever made it to the office that day. By this theory, someone would have been waiting for her outside of her condo or possibly at the bottom of the stairs, knowing that she would come down immediately. This calls to mind the Jody Hoosentrut case we covered in episodes 208 and 209. But unlike Jody, Jennifer was not heard screaming. She didn't drop all of her things on the ground, and there were no drag marks. The more popular belief is that she was abducted at or in her vehicle. If someone was waiting for her, and she unlocked the car. Mind you, she's juggling all of these items that she has with her, her phone, Travis's phone, her briefcase, and her purse. Someone could have tasered or chloroformed her and shoved her in the vehicle and drove off. Or, as she unlocked her car and went to load her stuff in, a van could have pulled up and hauled her in and someone else drive her car away to make it look like she had left. If either of these two things are what happened, whoever took Jennifer must have known that no one was likely to be around to witness this abduction. Keep in mind, this was broad daylight when Jen usually left for work, and taking her from a visible parking lot is quite risky. On the other hand, there are strong proponents of the theory that Jennifer was abducted at night. As we said, the Orlando Police Department at least initially embraced this theory, saying that her cell phone seemed to be on the move late Monday night. Perhaps she had gone out to find a FedEx location to send Travis's phone, although she had told Logan, her brother, that she would mail it on Tuesday. The Kessies say there is no way that she would have gone out and that this would have happened. But one thing that Drew Kessie alluded to does bolster the nighttime abduction theory. He said that while Jennifer was on the phone that Monday night, someone knocked on her door. Jennifer looked through the peephole and said that it was the male neighbor and that she, was going, she wasn't going to open the door. But this story is very strange. For one thing, we know that Jennifer didn't really have many neighbors. Keep in mind, this condominium complex, it's about half empty at this time. Right. By some reports, only two people lived in her wing of that building. This also goes along with the fact that nobody heard a scream. There might not have been anybody there to hear a scream. Yeah. The old, 
if a tree falls in the woods situation. Right. And for someone as safety conscious as Jen, it's a little bizarre that she didn't make more of this incident, the knocking on the door at night. This has led to much speculation that Jennifer knew who was at the door and maybe possibly lied to whomever she was talking to, which I believe was Rob at this time, Mm -hmm. perhaps then letting the person in because she knows them, but not wanting to tell her boyfriend, Hey, this person I know is at the door and I'm I'm letting them in at night. Yeah. Well, and you also wonder too, if she let her brother and his friends stay at her condo, is this just the neighbor coming by to uh, check in on her or tell her that they were rowdy or, Tell her that there was no problems with them all weekend. So here's the thing that I, I think we should address before we move on too far is we are hearing this story of someone knocking on her door Monday night around 10 o'clock or just after 10 o'clock, basically third or fourth hand by this point. We're hearing it from her father who is discussing a conversation she was, I believe, to have been having with somebody else with Rob. Right. So we're getting this information from Rob to Drew, and then Drew, her father, is passing it along to the public. And one thing that I heard when this was discussed was a reference to not only that this was a a male neighbor, but I believe that at one time Drew used the, the words or the sentence, oh, it must be the man upstairs, you know, like a neighbor man right. that lived above her. And I got to thinking about this, Captain. I wonder, having lived in apartments, and you've lived in apartments, and we lived in one together, and remember, I would always blast my music. And you were had, a jerk. I, I didn't mean to be a jerk, but I was, I was insensitive to those around us, and therefore, I tried to become friends with the one neighbor who I was bothering the most with the, the loud music. Yeah. So we were on a first-name basis with him, as he was often reminding me, could you please turn down the music? It's late at night. Where my mind kind of goes with this is sometimes when we lived in our apartment, you would hear a knock and assume that it was coming, that someone was knocking on your door. Then you go and you look through the peephole and there's nobody there. And then you figure it out. You put it together. You're like, oh, I'm hearing somebody knock on the neighbor's door. I wonder if if there's a chance that no one was there and that that statement that Jennifer made was just interpreted wrong. Is there a chance that she is on the phone, middle of the conversation goes up. I think I just heard somebody knock at the door, gets up, looks at the people. There's no one there, but her statement is, Oh, it must be the man upstairs. I'm not going to open up the door. Right? Well, it must be the man upstairs may mean she thinks that the knock is on the neighbor's door upstairs. I'm not going to open the door. And this is really just nothing that has to do with her disappearance at all. Right. Or like you said, it's somebody else and she's telling her boyfriend it's just the neighbor. Right. This really cute guy just knocked on my door. Yummy. Now, another fact that could add to the nighttime abduction theory is something that Joyce Kessie said. And this was that a men's size medium banana republic sweater was found in jennifer's laundry hamper under some other clothes now rob her boyfriend was a size large he says this was not his sweater but there could be a possible explanation for this a very simple one it actually could have belonged to jennifer even though it was a men's sweater many women buy men's clothing 
cozy, casual, laying around the house kind of thing, or just for some kind of look that she was going for. Jennifer, keep in mind, was five foot eight and 130 pounds. So she probably, I asked a few of our lady friends or my lady friends, and several of them said that this would fit like a men's size medium. That sweater could have belonged to some dude or it could have belonged to Jennifer. And again, just like the knock, it could be something that has nothing to do with the case at all, that it's not important. It was found in her condo because that's where you would expect to find it if you knew it was hers. The thing about all of this stuff, uh, especially the sweater, let's, let's dig through the sweater real quick, because here's one, one piece of, of information that we do know that comes to mind. We have her mother that she had conversations with Jennifer regarding outfits, shoes. We know that to be true, right? So what I'm thinking about here is when the parents and brother and brother's friend arrive at her condo and they're looking through her things and they're going, oh, this looks like a morning abduction or it looks like she went vanished sometime in the morning because it appears that she was getting ready for work. We have two outfits right. that are lying out. They're, they're prepped. They're sitting there w- waiting for her to compare them to the shoes or consider wearing them to work that day. If she did, in fact, get ready for work and left that day wearing those shoes that her mother says that she wanted to wear that day, then there is an outfit missing. What this tells me is that even though we have all of these conversations and her family knew her well, she had lived on her own for quite some time. Her mother is not able to provide anybody saying this is the outfit that was missing from her condo. Right. She was wearing something. This is what was missing. We don't have that. So I wouldn't expect her parents to be able to provide us with a full inventory of all of her clothing. I think very likely that this sweater just belongs to Jennifer Kessie. Yeah. It also could be like an ex-boyfriend sweater that she just liked and kept kept around yeah many people have also suggested that because of logan and travis and then even her ex-boyfriend matt visiting her condo that weekend before they've questioned could this just simply be one of their sweaters i think not because it seems too it seems too easy for one of those three young men to identify this as theirs right Now, the biggest reason we need to consider a possible nighttime abduction is Jennifer's cell phone. Now, as we heard from Drew Kessie, police said based on cell tower ping evidence that Jennifer was out and about on that Monday night, possibly even going to a sketchy area, as they called it, because her phone and Travis's phone were pinging on towers indicating that she was out and about, and that could indicate that she left sometime after that phone call with Rob that night. Right. Let's keep in mind, this was 2006, before cell tracking technology was as sophisticated as it is today. It was hardly an exact science, as we know from Serial. But the pings pointed out by the Orlando Police Department made no sense. And this is according to Drew Kessie. He stated that the Orlando Police Department ping results should be completely disregarded. Apparently, they showed Jennifer's phone pinging on two separate towers miles apart at almost the exact same time. Right. 
Obviously, this could not accurately reflect the whereabouts of her phone since she could not be in two places at once. According to Drew, Verizon had the pings happening, quote, all over the place. Further, the Orlando Police Department told Drew Kessie at one point that Jen's phone and Travis's phone appear to have been powered down or had the batteries removed sometime around 10.40 or 10.50 p.m. on Monday night. We can only presume that the Orlando Police Department believed this because the phones stopped pinging at this time. But they have since backed off of this time frame, the police department. And the Kessies said Jen never turned her phone off. She always charged it and it had it and had it with her. This is a, this is a difficult thing here. And I would love to know the science behind it. Not so much the science behind it on current cell phones, on her phone and the activity that we could expect from her phone that she was using back in 2006. Would the phone still ping when shut off? Does it only stop pinging once the battery is completely removed? Because I've heard the Kessies say time and time again that they believe that Jennifer would have used her phone for an alarm clock, that she very likely would not have shut her phone off. Right. Again, she lived on her own for quite some time. I'm just recalling back to 2005 and 2006 and seven for me and thinking about cell phones as they were and as they were used back then by by a lot of us, it was much different than how we use our phones today. We, we reach for them for almost everything today. Back then, it wasn't so much the case. I mean, we know that Jennifer had a landline because her cell phone was not great. It was spotty at best once inside her condo. Yeah, which is super old school. Well, it's it's old school for today, but not right, in 2006. Right. I had a landline up until, I believe, 2007. And to top that off, I can recall even in 2007 and eight still using an alarm clock and because we didn't trust our cell phones back then the way that we do now. You know, I remember I lived in Columbus, Ohio. It's a major city. My cell phone that I had back then barely worked inside my home. If I went down to the basement, nada, couldn't do anything with it down in the basement, you know, as far as reception goes. And so I almost feel like this is a time when people were still using landlines. We know she was using one. This is a time when people were still using alarm clocks. I'd like to know if she, if they had financial records of her, because all I could think is like, she's getting ready for bed. She's in bed other than maybe letting somebody into the house. What would be her motivation to leave you know, maybe other than this FedEx box. Well, let me drop off this phone in the FedEx box. I don't buy that she would do that. I buy, sh- I think she'd just do that at work. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, steak and shake pretty late at night can get me to go out of my house. True that. Or sometimes like you get a hankering for a blizzard mm-hmm. and you decide at 11 o'clock to go to Dairy Queen. So now I, on on the 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 opposite end of that where they where the parents say hey she wouldn't have turned off her phone she wouldn't have done this she wouldn't have done that one thing that they say is she would not have left they they believe from what they know of their daughter that once she was in for the night she was in for the night right. and you brought up the FedEx 
thing with the cell phone, with Travis's cell phone, and that is what is brought up the most. The problem with this is 10 o'clock at night, there's not a FedEx store open at that time. Right. Jennifer's smart. She knows what's going on. She's going to be aware of this. She's not going out looking for a FedEx store at 10 o'clock at night. Now, you said something interesting there. What if it's just a drop box that she's looking for? I guess she could have brought some materials home from work or whatever to to prep that box and drop it off somewhere. Again, and I know everything isn't in, you know, I can't relate everything to our own personal life experiences, but at my work for years, we had stamps.com. And once I had that in my life at work, I wasn't going out and making special trips to ship anything, man. Right. I only shipped stuff Monday through Friday when I was at work, and our work encouraged us to use it. Yeah, we had to use our own money for it, but it was so convenient. You're not making an extra trip anywhere. You have to be there for work anyway. And the thing is, she would have found the phone. If I understand the way that her Monday went, she very likely would have been unaware that Travis's phone would be found in her condo until she was already on her way home from work on that Monday. Because we know that she kind of got stuck on this trip. They couldn't fly back to where they wanted to fly to, and she had to drive from, from that location right into work that day, work a regular day, and then on her way home, she has a, a conversation with her parents and then has a conversation with her brother, Logan. I am of the belief that that is when Logan informed her, hey, my buddy Travis, you know Travis, he left his cell phone at your condo. Could you ship it to him? So if she doesn't know about this thing until she's already on her way home, she wouldn't have known to bring any boxes or, or any shipping materials with her home. Right. So it just seems so unlikely. And then the other factor, too, is Rob is saying that she said, I'm in bed. I almost feel like, Captain, that this 1040 or 1050 p.m. Monday night with the phones being powered off, I have two major thoughts on this. One could be that she just, in fact, shut them off, and they they no longer performed any ping activity after that took place. Right. Why would she do that? You don't want to be disturbed when you're trying to sleep. Maybe she has an alarm clock, all right? You don't know what kind of activity Travis's phone is going to have too, right? When you're trying to sleep and you got to go to your work the next day. So maybe she did just in fact power them off. The other question I have is we are hearing this second or third, fourth hand, however you want to take it. And we have been told by Drew Cassie that this information was relayed to them by the Orlando Police Department that at that time, early on in the investigation, they thought something happened that night and they were using this ping technology or their lack of understanding of the ping technology at the time to support that theory he is saying not only did we have this conversation but they had the conversation with me and my family and when we left that meeting the three of us both had different opinions on exactly what they were trying to tell us he also says that they did walk that back a little bit in future discussions with the family so where my head goes, is there a chance, and we've seen this in some other cases, where officers looking to provide a timeline, an accurate timeline for the events of what took place, 
they're reaching out to Verizon and to the to these cell phone companies to get information and sometimes there's a something gets lost in translation. Is it possible that this could be 10:40 a.m. or 10:50 a.m.? It could be something as simple as that. So it's interesting to look through this and I think that what we really have to hone in on is that it appears to me from everything we're being told by Drew Kessie that the ping information is very likely inaccurate. So it's really hard to know how much value to put on this information. The Kessies believe the phone information is absolutely useless as there is no way to know what is correct and what is not. We know that Jen's family says there is no way that she would have gotten dressed after telling Rob she was going to bed and heading out with Travis's phone. That's the other weird thing. If she goes out, why would she, if she's not going to FedEx, why would she bother to even take Travis's phone with her? Right. Unless it, you know, people point out, well, maybe it was already in the car in her briefcase for the next day. Yeah, we don't know. But it, it seems like a lot of things have to line up for this to to be a real thing. The thing, the thing here, though, is there's one more possibility surrounding a possible nighttime abduction. Drew Kessie stated on the unconcluded podcast that a set of keys to the condos had been stolen the month before and the manager's office had a key making machine that could be easily accessed by just about anybody. Drew told Jennifer to get her locks changed, but she hadn't got around to it. It is theoretically possible that Jen was asleep that night and someone entered her apartment and took her, managing to do so stealthily and without causing any disruption. But they would also have had to have taken her briefcase, work shoes, both cell phones, car keys, purse, iPod. It it just seems crazy that somebody would go in and get her that night and determine all the things that should be missing from her condo that you would expect to be missing had she gotten ready for work and left the house on her own. It It just seems like too much for the perpetrator to put together. And then to top that off, we know that the pepper spray was found on a countertop in her condo. We know that even though the security system was not being used at that time by her, there was a panic button. There was a panic button in her bedroom. This seems like, I get it that the daytime parking lot abduction seems risky, but even somebody that could have got into her condo, then you have to deal with the fact that she she could try to defend herself with the pepper spray. She could grab anything for a weapon in her condo, and she could hit that panic button. None of that happened. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn 
at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. 
That's code TrueCrimeGarage50 at Factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery danger, and romance, and customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right. Cheers, mates. Don't be rude to your neighbors. Be nice. Try to play nice in the sandbox. We we need to give the Orlando Police Department some credit here, right? We were... You talk about being rude. We might have been a little rude to them last week. But where they showed a lot of effort was the searches for Jennifer Kessie. Now, we cannot go through all of the searches that were conducted over the years as the Orlando Police Department pursued every tip and lead that came in. Over 1,000 leads have been investigated in this case. Drew Kessie has said many times that the Orlando Police Department was fantastic at following up on tips, jumping into action, and conducting major searches when credible tips came in, and there have been many. But he said the Orlando Police Department completely failed to actually generate any leads themselves. He believes that this is why Jennifer's case is where it stands today, which is unsolved. Once the Kessies convinced the Orlando Police Department that Jennifer had not willingly disappeared, the usual searches were conducted. This started with the areas in a five-mile radius surrounding Mosaic at Millennia and the Huntington on the Green, where grid searches conducted by officers, volunteers, dogs, and people on horseback. This included major roads. These took place over the course of several days. The area search was bounded by Texas Avenue, Orange Blossom Trail, Oak Ridge Road, and Holden Avenue. At one point, 1,200 volunteers were involved in a search engineered by Child Watch of North America. The wooded areas between the Mosaic at Millennia and the Huntington on the Green were searched, including a wooded area near Huntington on the Green, where a scent was found. Storage closets in Jennifer's building were also searched. We do not know whether the large pond at the complex was scoured, but Knowing the Kessies, they likely demanded that it be searched. Empty condos in the building were inspected, but it is not believed that forensic tests were conducted on any of them. The Orlando PD conducted several door-to-door knock inquiries at both Huntington on the Green and the Mosaic at Millennia. Right, but they, they processed her car, but 
you said last week that they didn't process her apartment. Correct. And I'm not saying that they are right in doing so or going about it this way, but I think that this is why they process one and not the other. Keep in mind when her family first discovers that Jennifer is missing, the police don't really believe that anything nefarious took place. They think she just got mad at her boyfriend. She took off for a little bit. She's going to be back. So we have people coming and going from her condo before they believe that they need to process this condo unit. Right. But they shouldn't assume. I get you. any investigation, you shouldn't start off by assuming anything. Well, here's where they may have made a good assumption. When they found the vehicle, they immediately went, okay, now we're on board because we found her vehicle. We thought she just took off. Why are we finding her vehicle and not her? And on top of it, I think it's even more suspicious that it's found within walking distance of her condo complex. Right. And also a worse area. So immediately they believe that wherever she is, like the answers in where Jennifer Kessie is at this point in our case, the infant stages of the case, we believe the car is the key. This is the map. This is going to tell us either what happened or where she is or, or who is responsible. So the vehicle itself was processed. Now, one of the popular theories out there is that she could have been carjacked or she was taken after she was in her vehicle. As we discussed last week, Captain, eventually they released this vehicle. It was turned back in, and it was turned back into the bank because it was it was not paid for. It was a leased vehicle. Personally, I believe here that if if the police department, if they found anything, anything in there to suggest that that is where the abduction took place or that, unfortunately, I hate to say these things out loud, but these are the things we have to discuss or she was killed in that vehicle or stored in that vehicle for any length of time. I'm not so sure that they would release that vehicle. That to me almost indicates that at least they don't believe that something major took place inside that car. Right. Continuing on with some of these searches, we have the local news reported that a search of heavily wooded areas near the Huntington on the green was searched. This is in January of the same month that she went missing, January 30th. They state here that a scent was picked up in the woods. Tips alleging where Jennifer could be found led to scores of searches, including an abandoned hotel, a vacant timeshare complex, a retention pond that was drained, and so on and so on. After police picked up on street rumors and received a credible tip that Jen was alive and being held against her will, at a boarding house on Fourth, I'm sorry, 40th Street mm-hmm. in Oak Ridge. This is 2.6 miles away from where she lived. This home was invaded on February 12th by a SWAT team. They're looking for Jennifer. They're looking for any evidence that she would have been there before this date. Nothing was found. There was no evidence that she had ever been there at all. The location was near Huntington on the Green. And it was owned by somebody with more than 20 arrests. I don't have what this person's arrest history is, but just noted that 20 arrests. In 2008, Texas EquiSearch arrived in Orlando. This was to help search for Kaylee Anthony, but they also conducted a search of the woods near Mosaic. They too found nothing. In 2009, there was also a 
massive search that was conducted. It was a fruitless search. It came in by way of tip. But in 2010, Orlando PD received a credible tip about an overgrown field. This is located on Orange Blossom Trail near Oak Ridge Road, which is now the site of a Walmart not too far from Huntington on the Green. Cadaver dogs hit on a spot here, and the Orlando Police Department used backhoes, sifters, and ground-penetrating radar. This search was one of the more significant ones that renewed the Kessie's hope that Jen would be discovered, but it came, but nothing came of it. We should note here that multiple online sleuths have posted that this search location was very close to where one of the known suspects, and we'll call him Adam for now, that he resided near this area around this time or at the time of her abduction. Now, there was no way for me to verify that I was unable to verify that he actually lived near this location at the time of the abduction. In 2012, there was also another major search. And then in 2015, the Kessie family received a tip that Jennifer was buried in a national park near Miami. This, again, was another massive search using land, air, and sea vessels. Unfortunately, nothing was found. Yeah, and think about the emotional roller coaster the family has to go on. You think that there's a solid lead. You you go through the proper channels to get a proper search, and then you find nothing. Yeah, a lot of these searches look like something was going to come of it. And then we also have statements that have been made to lead us to believe that something promising was coming from the investigation itself. Right. So we have one of the detectives on the case made public statements sometime around mid-February of 2006 that the Jennifer Kessie case would be coming to a conclusion within the next week or so. He said that they had viable evidence and were tracking down certain transients. Clearly, since it's now almost 14 years later and 1,000 dead-end leads later, he was speaking out of turn. Right. Drew Kessie told a reporter in 2009 that the police had thought they found the driver of the car, of Jennifer's car, who parked it at the Huntington on the green, but they were, they were wrong. And so the search continues. There have been some, using air quotes here, Captain, sightings of Jennifer Kessie over the years. Yeah. There's been a lot that has been reported. There's been a lot that have been called in. There were a lot that were featured on the unconcluded podcast. Unfortunately, it's very time consuming to go through these possible sightings. And really to me, I don't want to, I don't want to feel like I'm doing anybody a disservice here, but I feel like I'd be doing you a disservice if we go through all of these, because they don't seem to be credible at all. In my opinion, I agree. In April of 2006, the man who owns the company that Jennifer Kessie worked for, David Siegel, he put up $250,000 as a reward in her case. And then the following year, he decided to raise this amount all the way up to $1 million. Wow. This comes with a stipulation, though, for if you want to get the $1 million, he's stating, you need to tell us where she is, we need to find her, and she needs to be alive. Now, no one ever has claimed any of this money. The FBI did get involved in her case. This was in 2010, four years after Jennifer vanished, when they became involved. 
This was at the request of Drew and Joyce Kessie. I'm guessing that they probably were requesting this for quite some time before it actually took action. The feds agreed to review the evidence that the Orlando Police Department had compiled up to that date. They also brought in Logan, her brother, and Drew, her father. They brought them in for questioning, and they gave Logan a lie detector test. Drew offered to take one as well, but they declined. I'm just kind of trying to read between the lines here of why they would decline that. My guess would be that one, one, here's what we do know. Once she was reported missing or, or told to the family that nobody could find her, she wasn't at work, wasn't where she was supposed to be, couldn't get a hold of her, couldn't find her at her condo, and her vehicle was missing from her parking spot. Her parents and her brother and her brother's friend jumped into action right at that time. They had to make a very long drive to get to her condo complex. The reason why I think Drew is of less importance for the investigation is because there's no way for him to be a suspect. There's no way for him to have moved that car, moved her car, and also be driving to her condo at that exact same time. Right. Same goes for Logan, who we know was in route as well. But why do you let him take the lie detector test and not really go into one with the father? Well, you don't really need the father to do one so much if you get what you wanted from Logan. And where I'm going with this, Captain, is I would think as an investigator at that time that the people that I should possibly be looking at might be the two friends of Logan's. And if he is able to provide them with answers regarding Matt and regarding Travis and the FBI are going, well, neither Matt nor Travis look so good at this time. We don't know what additional information Drew could provide us at this time regarding those two individuals. And maybe they don't like those two individuals after they get done talking to Logan. They don't like them as suspects. suspects. Thank you. We don't know what else was done in these regards regarding the FBI, but essentially the FBI only reviewed the case and made some recommendations to the Orlando Police Department regarding how that agency should proceed from there. Now, by February 2011, the FBI announced that it was ending its involvement in the Jennifer Kessie case. Drew Kessie said that they told him, quote, your daughter seems to have vanished. We do not know exactly why or how, and we really have nothing to go on, end quote. Yeah, it seems the more we do this show, the more we hear about individuals just disappearing into thin air almost. We have some suspects that we can discuss here, Captain, and I think there's some that we can clear off along the way. There are some certainly that look better than others in this case. First, let's discuss who everybody would kind of make the leap to immediately in this case is Jennifer's boyfriend, right? Rob Allen. As we discussed, the Orlando Police Department looked at Rob as someone who might be connected to Jennifer's case. However, Rob cooperated fully with the investigation. In fact, he contacted the Orlando Police Department detectives on Jennifer's case before they called him. He submitted DNA, took polygraphs, and gave countless interviews to police. His alibi, by the way, for Tuesday, the 24th, is that he was at work. 
and this checks out. Now, we should keep in mind that this assumes a daytime abduction. Rob could, in theory, have drove all the way up to Orlando after their 10 p.m. phone call and got into the condo, abducted, got rid of Jennifer, and then got to work back in Fort Lauderdale in time. Right, but also doesn't look like the suspect driving the vehicle. That's correct. In addition to this, his cell phone usage shows that he was in Fort Lauderdale in the time frame in which Jennifer went missing. He, from my understanding, is considered to be cleared. Rob is still close to this day with the Kessies and still helps out as much as he can in finding Jennifer by participating in TV shows and articles regarding her case. We also can bring up Drew and Logan Kessie, father and brother. It's, you know, we've already kind of gone through this, so I don't think that we need to dive into this one too much more. Right. Because these are two loving family members. They don't seem to be any way involved in the abduction of their sister or daughter. Logan was polygraphed by the FBI, as we mentioned, when it commenced a review on the case in 2010. Drew offered to be polygraphed, but they didn't take him up on it. Both men were eager to do whatever necessary to not only rule themselves out, but to move on and help the Orlando Police Department move on with their investigation. Well, in a lot of these cases that somebody just goes missing or disappears into thin air, there's normally a time where family members might act a little strange. I, I don't think you see that in this case. Right. If anything that you see, not only are the parents acting um, in the manner that you think they should, but almost the way you wish all parents would act in these situations. I they're mean, they're leading the charge. Yeah. And it's all, it's as you just said, that if I were to go missing, this is how you would want somebody to react and to hold on to your case and lead the charge to find you. Right. One person who the police looked very hard at was Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, Matt Sullivan. He's remember, he's a friend of Logan's. They had been broken up for well over a year by the time she went missing. But remember that Matt was in Jennifer's condo while she was in St. Croix, yeah. hanging out with Logan and Travis. Drew Kessie has said repeatedly that Matt did not easily get over the breakup and that he tried to get back together with her on more than one occasion. We have seen reports that by the time Jennifer vanished in 2006, that Matt had actually moved on and was dating someone else. Yeah. But at least initially, he was not happy about this breakup. Logan Cassie said that the Orlando PD, quote, put Matt through the ringer, end quote. This is probably because not only was Matt at Jen's place that weekend, the weekend before she went missing, but on Monday night, the 23rd, when many people believe that it's possible that she was taken that night. Matt was at a bar across the street right. from the mosaic at millennia. Now we should point out here. This was not just some dive bar that nobody ever goes in. This was a very popular bar called the blue martini. According to drew Kessie reports were that Matt was very drunk that night and he lived, he lived about 30 minutes away. So, Let's keep that in mind because that, that looks uber suspicious 
when you hear, oh, Logan and Travis and the Kessie family live two hours away. Yeah. Or three hours away, I'm sorry. Whatever it may be, that's a much bigger distance than Matt. Matt lived somewhat in the Orlando area. He lives only about 30 minutes away from Jennifer Kessie's condo and this bar, which is across the street. So what you're saying is this guy's drunk, pretty drunk at this bar. Yeah. But he's 30 minutes from his home, so he drove 30 minutes drunk. That's not what I'm saying. I don't know how he got home that night. What I can say is there are reports that he did return to his residence that night. And these reports are coming from his, I believe he had two roommates at the time. Right. That were saying that he was home around 1 or one thirty in the morning. So it's one of those things, Captain, where it's either suspicious or it's straight up a coincidence. And it's easy to see why people have followed who have followed Jennifer's case are very interested in Matt. Although we should point out that his involvement seems to be 100% speculative. Right. If, if he was across the street, he could have called her that night and said, Hey, let me come over. I'll grab Travis's phone and, you know, mail it for you because where he lives doesn't help get the phone to Travis any faster. Right. But we also have Jennifer's parents saying that, they don't find this to be likely. They don't think that she would open the door for someone at night. Uh, and possibly even if it was Matt that they, that she wouldn't open the door. This is tricky though, because we do have the statement about the knock. Remember the knock on the door, right? That drew Kessie said happened when Jen was on the phone. Jen said it was a neighbor. What if it was Matt and she didn't want to tell anyone because Matt was her ex. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Matt would certainly be familiar with Jennifer's condo and possibly her routines. He could have killed her in an argument. It doesn't have to be something that was planned and staged the condo to look like she had gone to work on Tuesday. It's certainly a theory that we can't dismiss offhand, but Unconcluded reported that both Matt and his buddies he was with that night were questioned. They seem to have been cooperative and that Matt agreed to a polygraph, although Orlando Police Department never followed through on that. Again, they should have. I, yeah. I think that's stupid. You're, you're I'm being, with you. you. You have the opportunity to just take it because maybe later you, you find some stuff and you don't get the opportunity because he has to lawyer up. Um, but he also doesn't really look similar to the suspect driving her car either. That's correct. And there were some reports early on that he was not at work the next day, which could just mean that, yeah, he was drunk and hung over and didn't make it to work the next day, or it could mean that he was busy cleaning up his mess from the night before. Right. The problem with that statement is we also have statements that say, no, that is incorrect. He was at work the next day. The problem too, that, that I want to point out is a lot of people suggest and say that well, Matt looks good to me because he doesn't seem to be willing to discuss the case publicly or go on the record with, you know, a newspaper or sit through an interview right. and, and be filmed. But he's willing to take a polygraph test. He's willing to, to take a polygraph test. And everybody that, that is close to the case seems to be saying the same thing, that he was cooperating with police. He, Matt, did at one time release a statement that said, look, 
early on in the investigation, when this became big news down in Florida, I was willing to talk with newspapers or with, with, with the news and media in general. The time that I did do that, the one time that I did do that, they took my story and twisted it all around when it finally came out. And he, he, you know, once bitten, twice shy. He doesn't want to do another interview with the newspaper or with media because he feels like this could easily happen again. That's, that's the difficult thing, too, for the public to keep in mind. You can sit down and discuss the case or what you know or don't know about the case of somebody that you know intimately, somebody that you were on the inner circle of with the media, but after that interview is over, you have you you are powerless on how they choose to release it, on what they choose to cut from your interview, uh, what they choose to include, and sometimes even the order that they decide to rearrange things. I've always heard that if you're going to do an interview like that where where it could be tricky for you later on in life, the best thing to do is to record the interview yourself, right? even if it's just audio. And go that way. You have something to to back your own, uh, back yourself up, and say, "Look, they they twisted this whole thing up. They're making me sound, or they're making me look guilty." When in fact, these are my answers to their questions. Thank you guys so much for joining us here in the garage and telling your friends about True Crime Garage. Much love to you. We want to see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.